Welcome to the People vs. Inequality podcast. In a time of crisis and fast change, this podcast is a space to reflect and learn with changemakers on how to tackle inequality. We are excited you joined us for this special series on emergent agency in a time of COVID. It is widely recognized that the pandemic and lockdowns led to an increase in poverty and inequality, but also that people showed incredible resilience and agency in responding to difficult and rapidly changing circumstances. For this special series, we teamed up with Oxfam, who spent the past 18 months collecting lessons. We highlight the stories of four changemakers that responded to the pandemic in new and innovative ways, from social entrepreneurs to organizers and movement leaders. What did they see, do, and learn in these past two years? How did they adapt? And what does this tell us about how to move forward? My name is Barbara van Passen. And before we go to our first inspiring story for this series, I ask Irene Guit of Oxfam to share a little more on what they set out to do with their emergent agency project and what they found. So in March and April 2020, Duncan Green, my colleague, and I uh, sat down and we, we talked about how we saw the world seeming to shut down and disconnect. And at the same time, we shared experiences of hearing and reading stories of the incredible ways in which people were not shutting down, were actually coming out and were, were reconnecting, but in different ways. And we wondered whether there was an opportunity there when you have so many stories and they seem to be exploding in terms of numbers and locations, whether we then had the opportunity to see if there were patterns that could give us insights that could really help those working with social justice issues to figure out how better to support these kinds of agency that we were seeing. So we collected stories and we had lots of conversations and we found, in fact, that there were some of these patterns and the patterns focused on purposes. You know, there were many different forms in which organizations were, and groups were coming out and showing up. One was obviously the many practical needs that were no longer being met through our established ways of providing food and income and housing. There was also a really interesting set of experiences around providing emotional support in these really tough times for people who were finding it very hard, but also the safety in the face of growing domestic violence. A third area in which we saw uh, groups and individuals being active was to tackle the, the misinformation around COVID and it's how it spread and what you can do against it. We saw another pattern of, and a huge one actually, a huge growth in, obviously, in, in digital activism, because that became almost the only way in which people could connect with income, but could also connect with mobilization and connect with the world when face-to-face -face was no longer possible. We saw capacity building, but also quite a lot of protests and advocacy. So a really wide rainbow of experiences around emergent agency. In that, we saw four bigger patterns that we think are particularly important for those supporting the fight against inequality and injustice, ways in which they could change and reimagine their support. And the first one was the incredible value of recognizing that change is hyper-local. It's more relevant. It's faster. The second one was about trust. Trust rather than contracts and log frames became the currency of collaboration. A third pattern that we saw was around new coalitions that weren't possible before, but became necessary when established relationships fell by the wayside for the time being, at least. And we saw initiatives going to scale, 
So that was the third phenomenon. But it's not all good news. This comes with a heavy price tag and we risk romanticizing, you know, the local heroes and saying they'll show up, you know, in another crisis when in fact we're, we saw deep, deep exhaustion and stress and personal cost financially and emotionally that these leaders and groups actually carried for us and realized that that was an area where we at least don't show up clearly enough so we have a research report. Our findings are going to be collated and they'll be coming out uh, shortly. Thank you, Irene, for laying that out so well. And of course, we'll be sharing the report once it's out. And uh, the elements that you're mentioning, they resonate so much with the stories that we'll hear in this series, starting with today's stories of Rosalind Orwa. So now you know a bit of the big picture. Let's dive into our first story featuring someone I admire greatly. Rosalind Orwa is an award-winning advocate for widows and the founder of the Rona Foundation. She supports and champions the rights of widows across Kenya. And she will tell us all about why that is so important and how they managed to address the many additional challenges the pandemic brought to rural Kenya and to these women in particular. I'm excited to speak to Rosalind as she is, and now I paraphrase her, a woman with many questions. And her work really shows what emergent agency is all about. So grab a coffee or tea and listen in on the conversation. I'm really happy to be here with Rosalind. Thank you so much for making the time and being on the show with us today. Thank you for having me and giving me the opportunity and your platform to add my voice. I'm particularly happy to speak to you also because we both participated in this emergent agency discussion hosted by Oxfam and, and partners. And we met around, I think, one year ago when you shared your story in one of these sessions. And I was so impressed. I'm very happy to have this opportunity to dive into it a bit more in our conversation today. And uh, I think what's also nice is that we're both Atlantic Fellows linked to LSE who's supporting the project. So in many ways, our paths are coming together. I'm sure there's a lot to learn from what you'll be, be sharing with us today. I would like to ask you to tell us a little bit more about who you are and especially what you're doing, how you started the Rona Foundation and what you're trying to do on a daily basis. Thank you, Barbara. I, as you said, my name is Rosie Norua. I am director and founder of Rona Foundation. And Rona Foundation is a widow human rights uh, organization that is uh, uh, championing widow rights and uh, supporting orphan education, care, and um, all the needs. But that is not to say that uh, the limited, because we are a grassroots organization based right in the village with a liaison office in the capital. So when you are a grassroots organization with a high impact, a high number of people, and the only one existing in, in, in your community, in a community where there's no road infrastructure, there is no electricity, there is no health services that is nearby, and if they exist, they are six kilometers or eight kilometers away with very little medication and equipment. So the needs are very huge. The needs and the people are very huge. It's like you are talking about a community that is sort of forgotten, packed right at the lakeshore, very remote in a Gulf village, highly HIV perished, and of course now COVID ravaged. So my work is centered around humanitarian support, economic empowerment, social empowerment, offering health services, scholarship and education. But sometimes I think that limits what we do, because what we really do 
is to be the heart and soul of the community because a community that has the government is not nearby. Services are not both social and um, economic services don't exist. Then you become like their sole provider of many, many things, including knowledge. So when COVID came, that did not change for us. That actually was magnified. That was a thousand percent increase of needs because people are in curfew. I saw uh, the community with very new eyes. I saw the community that I had worked and lived in and I was born in, suffering the burden of care that is completely lacking. Children were at home for a period of a very long time. Schools were closed. So somebody needed to hold these children together. So our facility in the village became the holding ground. And parents would say, do something, create something. So in the process, my team and I, we created a football team, both girls and boys and volleyball. And so we were only holding them. Then we discovered schools were not going to be opened in time. So we started doing tuition classes under the tree. So these were just not planned. They were coming out of the problem, the people, and you're there. So what can you do? And children would wake up, both secondary, primary, university students would wake up and just say, we are here, show us what to do. Without even telling you, you would just see them hanging around, dazed, shocked. And a community that had already been perished by HIV, the triggers of trauma are very unique. And so when the care system is already broken, so these kids already have grandparents who are also very vulnerable. So somebody needed to provide solutions. And so our work became more risky, but also became more needed. Our reactions, you know, there's this quote in physics where they say, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. This is exactly what happened. So we we acted, food was needed. We started fundraising on Facebook. We started talking to partners, supporters because of food. We started providing hot meals to the elderly who are not able to leave their homes. We started doing, uh, even, uh, you know, responding to GBV door to door because domestic violence went very high. Partner, intimate partner violence with our widow community was very high because these women were now falling into traps of uh, economic uh, arranged marriages. I'm here just because I have, I need some food. So if you give me one dollar, two dollar, I will, you know, hang in with you. Hmm. And intimate partner violence was on the high. We had to find ways. I remember one time we have this team called community action teams, just uh, stakeholders, male champions, widow leaders. We had to go back to one of our funders and say, the only thing you can do for us, give us branding items so that they can be identified when they respond to these calls for a GBV so that they can go mediate so that they also, when they appear there, they can be identified. So our innovations were very practical, but also as a knee-jerk reaction to the needs of the community when COVID hit. I'd like to Mm -hmm. dive into some of this because there's already a a lot to unpack here. Thank you for laying that out. So you had been in a community and by being often the only grassroots organization in a community for almost everything. So I think that's already a very important insight. And then Obviously, the needs became so much bigger in terms of urgent basic needs, but also the question of violence. And I'd like to ask you why this focus on widows, what were their particular challenges and obstacles that they faced during the pandemic? Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? I am a widow. I have been a widow now for 14 years. My husband uh, died in the post-election violence in 2008. 
And I came face to face with many, many things, discrimination, disinheritance, and largely those I knew existed. My mother had been widowed when I was 22. But what was shocking to me with a university degree, with a, a job and a, a successful business, and my husband was a politician, was the stubborn cultural practices. And so I stood up to challenge. I don't think even at the time I was challenging. I only needed a say, no, I don't think this is right with me. I think there's something here. I think this is about dignity and rights. And I'm losing them just because I lost my husband. I am a reflection of how widows can heal and thrive. But I'm also a reflection of how, how widows can still remain invisible. I am still invisible in very many spaces. I am still considered underqualified in very many spaces. Even when I've done this job, changed laws, passed policies, created government budgets with widows uh, funding programs, just today, the UN, out of our lobbying and joint lobbying with other global partners, is passing a resolution on widows as an invisible category of women. Even wow. with that success, I am still considered invisible in the global platform because of my color of skin. So this is why the widows become my uh, a primary target for my work. Because we want to think these are the most resilient women. This is the woman who still stands there. Mm. When her husband is at war, she's the one who crosses the border like we see in Ukraine to go and look for a safety with her children in another country. She doesn't even know whether she'll see her husband next. Some of those women crossing the borders, their husbands will be dead. Mm. You know? So this is why this woman is a primary target. All the intersections of gender, all the intersections of economic inequalities falls at the foot and hand of this woman. But she's the one most talked about, but most under-resourced most seen as a even win politician votes, but she's the one who will not make the leader. She's the one who will sit at the table of discussions, but she's the one who will be spoken at the table of discussion, but she will not be at the table. Yeah. And so this is why this is my focus area. And this is why I believe when we can't create the table, join the table, we create our own. And I think this is what uh, my work is literally doing. We are... Uh, an emergent agency as an invisible group of women. We talk about all manner of widows. War mm. and conflict is a great widow maker. COVID, a great widow maker. So I think our silence around it is what has been shocking for me. And I think that is what I try to break, that there's something here. Let's interrogate together. Thank mm. you, Rosalind. And congratulations on the achievements that you've made along the way. And I think it's interesting because there's so much talk about intersectionality and especially also in the context of a pandemic or another crisis, which, you know, is really hitting those who have been most marginalized, discriminated against hardest, that still there are many groups that are not fully recognized, not fully understood. And that are, I think you, something you mentioned before, they're, they're basically denied <laughs> Uh, their agency. So I think that's really important. And I, I wonder during the pandemic, how the widows in your community were mm. impacted. And I'm curious to hear a little bit more about what you saw, what were some of those particular challenges that widows faced, and also how they responded, maybe how they fought mm. back and made sure they survived during such difficult times. COVID presented unprecedented challenges on an already burdened women. Rural widows are already burdened. They were vulnerable before. But what was shocking is how they responded. Their response is why even we came to the emergent agency program to document how they responded. 
What did I see? You know, I saw families losing their income. You have a stock of $10 and you're closing it because markets are closed. You can't access it. I also saw the cultural practices becoming even more stubborn. Look at COVID burials. Burial structures changed, but not the widow traditional practices. The widow traditional practices remained. I saw the risks that these women were going through, you know, infection risks. Because how could you sit home with two or three, five children in a home that is already a graveyard because of HIV and you have no food? You had to go either to forage or to go to fishing sector, which is the main source of income in my community. The lake was also locked. So where would you get food? What I also noticed is how many people were talking about economic issues at the time. We were all focused on the pandemic. Yeah, the health side. The health side. Nobody was talking about the humanitarian needs. Nobody was talking about the orphan scholarships and these teenage girls. Seeing this and the innovations they did therein. And what were the innovations they did? Women farm. We are a local community, kitchen gardens, uh, you know, some stock of maize. These women were the ones because their children and relatives had lost jobs in the city. So these women were the ones sending food to their relatives and children who had lost yeah. their jobs in the city. I saw widows beginning to plant cassava and potatoes, foods that were resistant to drought and could be, you know, hunger foods. So I saw those little innovations. I saw a community of women that had seen HIV and they were the ones providing the support system, talking to each other, reaching out to other uh, widows, responding to their needs, providing uh, psychosocial support, becoming their own mentors and counselors and say, do not give in. Let's hang in there together. So I saw that transition and I saw proximate leadership. Both men and women come on board and say, we cannot just sit around and wait for, you know, girls to get pregnant. One of our widow leaders, Mildred Olo, became like a mentor mother for young girls. And we would gather these girls in her homestead, provide sanitary pads to her, soap, toilet paper. Nobody Was it different from before? Like, is this something that you wouldn't have seen? pre-pandemic, the extent of solidarity that you're describing now? No, you wouldn't have seen. Because ordinarily on normal times, people go by, families care for each other. The kind of solidarity I'm describing is people who went outside their blood family, people who saw the need, who had there was an issue. So that kind of solidarity, I think, is the kind that only happens when there's a crisis. Yeah. Because otherwise, people revert to their factory settings, and that is to care for their immediate family members, people they know. I think philanthropy and humanitarian service, it's itself a call. So when you recognize and see it in a time of crisis, then you say, there's something there. Let's document it. And we did document it. Yeah, and that's really interesting because an organization like yours, you're not only providing the support and get strengthening some of the solidarity systems that are happening, you've also been documenting. and. There are a lot of lessons here to be learned. I'm curious to hear from you a bit more about how you responded. There's this massive amount of work to be done, both very urgent needs, but also the more structural work with advocacy and putting rights on the agenda, right? And so can you say a little bit about how you maneuvered, how you went about your own tactics and strategies during this period of time? Maybe I didn't even think of them as tactics or strategies. 
I was just offering natural human response. The things you cannot tell people, Barbara, that you care about them only in good times. Does that have a season? Does that have a period of the day or night that uh, you don't care? Because I think care is a constant. It's natural. You live it. It's not spoken. It's a practice. And so at some point, the second or third month of the pandemic, we sat with my board members and I asked them, so when do we really care? Is it not this time of the season that we should care? We have to do much more than I know the risks are high. The risks are very high. Mm. Infections, death curfew, lockdown, government policies. So the risks were everywhere. But the desire to meet the needs of a people, it was greater in me than it was never before. Because I think only the brave can stand up in a crisis. I'm the kind of uh, a leader that goes beyond the ordinary call of duty. I'm the one who will, uh, you know, do a holistic care program. Is it food? Is it a house? Is it uh, children going to school? Is it money for your business? I don't stop at saying this is the one thing we do. I don't think one thing works, especially when women are already so poor. There needs to be a multiple uh, strong approach to the issues of women who are living with a virus, fighting to live through another virus. At one point, I wrote an opinion piece and say, which, which virus will kill us? Is it HIV or is it COVID-19? You know, so my responses were natural. And uh, the, the following week after that op-ed that was published by the Daily Nation, the government uh, agreed that uh, people living with HIV would now access COVID vaccination. So my actions were natural. They came from what I saw. For me, it's never about money. It is sometimes just about using my voice because my voice doesn't need funding. My voice and the social media platform is a free innovation space and that you could do anything. So I used the tools I had that were available in my community, that were available in my hands. I kept on voicing my voice, speaking on radio, writing opinion pieces, documenting the emergent issues in my community. But at the time, I didn't think they were huge. And one of the things that had attracted me to the emergent agency, that it allowed us to document, it allowed us to participate in a research we are grassroots organization. I am a practitioner, a very skilled and experienced practitioner. But am I considered by the academia as a research person? No. So I saw this as a platform that we could also just document our work and that our work could also be a reference to some organizations. So I saw it also as a space to break this barrier between academia and practitioners. I am also thinking, could we have done more? If the COVID funds that were well spoken about all over the media, if it would have reached the women in my community, I mean, there was COVID funds all over. Who really benefited? Because the women in my community, 8,000 widows didn't. Mm. So we were still invisible to the, the funding framework globally. Despite the outreach that you did and really putting your voice out there, and being mm. recognized for that, because, I mean, that did have an impact. The blogs, the social media work that you did. Mm. And it's interesting how that doesn't translate into the funding. And I think that's also something to think about moving forward on the lessons that we've learned from this pandemic. And I'm curious, what else came up during the pandemic in terms of inclusion and participation and how you responded to that? At some point during the pandemic, I think one of the things that we also did that shocked us was that we realized that every gender conversation 
was on Zoom, was online. And so we asked ourselves, so initially there would be meetings and you could send your widow representative. But here we are, every conversation is online for two years. It actually means that these women will be left behind even more. So one time we decided to organize an online meeting with our widows. Remember, we are talking about literacy levels. We are talking about education. We are talking about the history of women education in the traditional African setup where women were not taken to school. They were having both a son went to school. So most of these widows, they already suffered patriarchy and gender inequality as girls. And now here they are being blocked out by digital inequalities. So one time we organized a forum with one of our partners and these women came on. We found phones, we found spaces and they came on Zoom. Some of them in their own homestead, we sent a representative there. But what was shocking was that in the rural setup, there's chicken and there's goats bleating and there is all manner of animals walking around and the villagers greeting each other. Our partners were shocked that during this Zoom meeting, there was so much animal noise from these <laughs> videos. And they said, this is the life. Well, you sit in the comfort of your own office, uh, somewhere in New York or in London or wherever in Nairobi. You are imagining that the conversations you are having are reflective of the people that you mean them for. I think we, what we were doing there was trying to reveal the reality versus the imagination. Because at some point you begin to realize all this conversation that is elitist does not impact and reflect on the reality on the ground. And so when I'm saying this, I'm not saying that uh, this conversation is bad. Uh, this is the tool we have right now. But I'm only saying that when we measure it, should we not go further to look at the human evidence whose life did it change? What did it change? Two years is a very long time for organizations to resource and not have practical and impactful reports. I think civic space is already shrinking. <laughs> for widows, it, it doesn't even exist. We have 60 widow groups. Are they part of civil society in Kenya? They are not because uh, women in their groups are beneficiaries, are considered beneficiaries of yeah. uh, NGOs and international NGOs who get the funding. Maybe today... The adoption and resolution by the UN will change that. I remain hopeful. And I hope with you, mm -hmm. um, because, I mean, what you're describing is, again, also not recognizing the agency of the mm -hmm. women that are doing the work, right? Mm -hmm. um, and if, if this pandemic has taught us anything, that's really urgently needed because there is so much to build on and to support. I'm curious, what are some of the other obstacles that maybe you faced and that you had to come up with innovative solutions. I can imagine that the lockdown itself, for example, posed some real constraints on moving around and supporting the people that you wanted to help out. This podcast is making me understand that these were real issues. <laughs> I didn't think of them like these are real problems. But can you imagine the lockdown is half is at seven o'clock. You've been called in, there's a rape or a defilement or, a, you know, gender violence. And you have to leave uh, your village to cross even maybe 40 kilometers to provide response. And you don't have a government pass. <laughs> the risk is to be arrested, stay in a police cell 
and breaking. Those were some of the barriers. How did we overcome that? I think uh, we joined a consortium of gender organizations and we asked, we wrote to the, we petitioned the government and the government gave us gender organization, they gave us passes and we had these letters that we could use. And so over time, we made our own budgets and we would just produce them at uh, police uh, stops and we would be allowed in, uh, to go by. The other thing that happened, together with a group of my widow leaders, we actually held a meeting with our county commissioner and we actually asked him that uh, he needed to look at us with um, very friendly eyes. And out of those meetings, because at one point I'd been arrested at a police stopover, so this is what brought that meeting. That arrest brought in a partnership that is now long-term, that we work with them, we do community outreach, we do GBV response, we are in the same was we created a WhatsApp group that bring in all the senior police officers together, and when there are cases, we work on it together, we respond in the immediate. So some of these uh, challenges became opportunities on their own, and I, I am the kind of person that... Uh, easily turns uh, challenges into opportunities. So that's been huge for our work. I think the main thing that came out of the lockdown for me is that police partnership. That's very interesting and a very unlikely outcome of an arrest. So thanks for sharing that. So to build on that and before we wrap up this conversation, I'm curious to know what are some of the biggest lessons you take away from this period? And how would you like to take that forward? I think one of the things I've learned is that local problems require local solutions. I mean, the world was locked out. The world was shut down. So it's really important to empower proximate leadership, leaderships that are with the people, with the people. Actually, it's important to put two things to them, maybe three. One, put knowledge, put network, give them networks, and then give them money to do the things that they already they proved for two years they were doing. Those are the things that are most lacking when you look at the human capacity in grassroots organizations and grassroots communities. If they get those things, they will challenge you. They will give you outcomes that will shock you. I also think going forward, I've spoken about investment in grassroots leadership and organization. Because I think the funding framework as it is right now is divorced from the needs of the people. Maybe there's an opportunity, a creative opportunity to narrow the gap and build trust between grassroots organization and the funding community. Because I think as it is right now, they're divorced. And I saw it in the last two years of the COVID pandemic. What is keeping us is our commitment and passion, nothing else. That is what is driving us. And they believe that our people can, can change and our people need to deserve these services. And our widows deserve to be seen, to be heard, because they're the only ones there. We are talking about a community with 80% dead men. The women are the center of this development, socioeconomic development in this community. The women are the ones raising this community. I think, let's use the evidence we have. We have enough evidence, whether in Kenya, me coming here to share with you what we did, how we did it, whom we did it with. If you look at the global north, there's enough evidence everywhere in Asia. Proximate grassroots organization are the ones at the last tire. All they need is money, knowledge, and networks. Maybe my second suggestion is let's overcome our biases. Have an authentic, honest conversation about philanthropy. Can we be honest with ourselves? Has all the grants and the funding put in the global north changed much? And why is it not changing? 
If we are able to overcome our bias, then we will build the key tool, which is most important here, is trust. Because trust is a currency that without which philanthropy becomes paper producing, report writing, evidence-based. So we must also have stories of change that we can use to change this funding framework so that people are the last, the person in need at the tail end of all this uh, philanthropy structure can be able to see who we are, can be able to testify about our hearts and soul. Even if you are a funder somewhere seated, somewhere very far in Seattle, very far in New York, very far in London, very far in Canada, that person at the last tire can be able to attach your grant and philanthropy to you, to your soul, the color of your heart and soul. And lastly, let's link our words to action. All these conversations we've had on Zoom for two years, can we measure, can we all individually, where we've had them, go out to measure and say, who? in fact, not how many numbers. I think the thing that would be for me is whose life did it change? So where's the evidence? What did these conversations do? Some of us continue to struggle even with digital access to date. So whose life are we changing? If any one of us can answer that question, then we are emergent agents of change. I think that's spot on. The story of the platforms that we're spending so much time on will resonate with many, raises a lot of questions around inclusion as we move forward. I think you're also raising a lot of important points around funding and philanthropy that is increasingly recognized. You know, there's a large conversation happening around shifting power, but what's really happening in terms of accessibility to funding. Thank you for being with us and for sharing your story of emergent agency. Thank you for having me, Barbara. It's just not my voice. It's the voice of the other widows that are at my heart and shoulder that you don't see. Yes. Because I believe no man should lose the rights and dignity because she lost her husband. Thank you for giving us the platform. God bless you. Thank you, Rosalind. And again, thanks for your time and the work. Thank you, listeners, for joining today's episode. I think the story of Rosalind shows just how important it is to reflect on changemakers' responses during times of crisis and to make sure that any outside support actually works for those doing the work. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe, leave a review and share with others as it will greatly help grow this conversation. And if you want to learn more about the Emergent Agency Project or about Rosalind's work, please check out the resources from today's show notes. Ciao!